Welcome, everyone. Offside with yours truly, Taylor Twelman. Now, a week ago, I confessed that Messi was driving me nuts. He still is. What Messi and Inter Miami are doing is nothing short of unbelievable. Think about it. Messi, Busquets, Jordi Alba, Tata Martino. Nine straight games in League's Cup, Open Cup, and MLS. They've won. Whether it's in penalty kick shootouts or regulation. That is nothing short of miraculous. And yet every week I sit in front of this mic and I promise all of you that I want to talk to you, with you, about American soccer, about Major League Soccer, about the U.S. men's national team, the U.S. women's national team. And then Messi strikes again with another assist, another goal, another fucking win. (sighs) But today, this show's not going to be about Messi. We're going to talk through the biggest stories that I cannot ignore. Now, before anyone here looking for the messy experience turns off this podcast, hang on a minute, hang on. We've got a little something for you. Two of our producers and I went to see Messi live and in person when he came to New York to play at Red Bull Arena against the New York Red Bulls first first Major League Soccer regular season game. So we want to give you a little hint of what actually happened. Everyone is waiting for something magical to happen in front of their eyes, and no one can turn away in anticipation that they're going to miss it. Robinson leans Busquets over to Jordi Alba. What a touch! Messi! Oh, what a ball to come out! He's got to disappoint you somehow, doesn't he? As good as Michael Jordan was, not every game did he hit a last-second shot. As good as Tiger Woods was, he didn't win every single time. Literally, Messi's delivering every time. I'm not going to lie to you. It was pretty surreal. New York City, last-minute goal. Everyone in Red Bull Arena seemed to rejoice collectively, even though it was an away game for Inter-Miami and Lionel Messi. And we really hope on this podcast we can bring you some of those things in the future of what it's like, this circus, this Taylor Swift type of mania and energy that's sweeping Major League Soccer And we plan on doing that. But in the meantime, I should acknowledge, I wasn't totally straight with you at the top of the show. I'm actually recording this Wednesday night. It's almost midnight here in Miami after Inter-Miami and Nashville played to a nil-nil draw. Now, it was extremely hot and humid. The first half, one of the slowest games I've called in a long, long time. And rightfully so to a game filled with, I would say, tired players and two tired teams. Hell, Nashville barely played their roster. Walker Zimmerman didn't dress. Sam Surge didn't dress. Hani Mukhtar didn't even start. But wait for it. It actually happened. Lionel Messi didn't have a goal and assist. Inter-Miami, for the first time in 10 games with Lionel Messi, didn't have a single goal. Nashville shut them out. They parked the bus. They parallel parked it. They parked it in a three-car garage. They parked it in an airport garage. They parked this bus 
any which way they could, and good on them. Gary Smith knew it was going to be difficult. Depleted roster, tired legs, but they leave here with a point. You got to remember, Nashville lost six of their last seven, lost four in a row, and came off their worst loss in franchise history, losing 4-0 last week to Atlanta. They desperately needed a point. But this was a game where I think Miami needed three points more because they've got potentially 10 players who are going to be gone for the international break coming up in a few days. That now includes Drake Callender and especially Ben Amin Kramaski, who we'll talk about a little bit later in the show, who gets his first call up to the U.S. men's national team. But the game of the night Wednesday was not actually here in Miami. It was in Atlanta, where FC Cincinnati came back from a gold down to beat Atlanta United 2-1. Now, FC Cincinnati is a team I'm extremely excited about. I want to talk about them more in a future episode. But on this show, I really want to dive into Tiago Almada and the fact that he's actually going to finish the MLS regular season in 2023 in Atlanta. I would have bet my house on it after winning the World Cup with Argentina that this summer he would have been moved for $25 million plus. But he's not. So we're going to be joined by Felipe Cardenas of The Athletic to talk about that, as well as highlights from across Major League Soccer in this transfer window that's closing today. But right now, I need to talk about the story. The story that's not just dominating the soccer world, but the entire sports community. So let's get into it. Significant breaking news. This coming out of Spain, the world champions, the Spanish women, the squad have released a joint statement and they have said they will not play any matches until the president of the Spanish FA, Rubiales, has gone. Let's start with the story that's got everyone's attention, both in sport and out of sport. Now, last week, the FIFA Women's World Cup ended after a month of outstanding football. Spain was crowned as new world champions, rightfully so. In my opinion, they were the best team in the tournament. But they were robbed of their moment to celebrate. When the president of the Spanish Soccer Federation, Luis Rubiales, grabbed and kissed Jenny Hermosa during the trophy ceremony. Now, Jenny immediately released a statement where she initially downplays the entire incident, saying it was, quote, a mutual gesture that was totally spontaneous and a natural expression of affection and gratitude. Now, about 48 hours after that statement, she clears everything up, saying she was pressured into that statement, removing any confusion that the interaction was consensual, invited, or even welcomed. Now, I got to remind everyone, the Spanish Federation already lacked real trust from the women players, and especially the public, after they ignored reports from 15 players on the team years ago, 12 of whom ultimately boycotted the tournament regarding conduct and training conditions under their head coach. Now, following the incident with Hermosa, calls for Rubiales to step down as president became unignorable for the Spanish Federation. And then all of it hit the fan. At last week's press conference, which was briefed to the press as Rubiales' resignation, he goes up to the stage, but he not only takes the podium, but he repeats over and over again, he will not resign. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. 
no voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. No voy a dimitir. He was applauded. He was applauded by the room full of the Federation's bigwigs, including the men's and women's national team managers. Amid mounting public pressure to resign, Rubiales and the Federation continued to refuse. Now, since then, Rubiales has now been suspended by FIFA from all football activities and could be suspended more broadly by the Spanish government pending a case currently in arbitration. And finally, on Monday, the Spanish Federation officially recanted and asked for Rubiales' resignation. Now, despite all of this, he continues to refuse to step down. And pending the court case, there is no mechanism for him to be removed from the position. I'm going to bring in Michael McCann. He is Sportico's legal expert. He's a professor of law at Harvard and UNH, and he is one of the nation's leading sports law experts. And he's here today to help me figure this out, to help you figure this out, and quite honestly, to make sense of one of the more bizarre situations I've ever seen. Now, I also want to quickly acknowledge this is going to be two men talking about something that we don't have full context or experience with regards to a huge side of the story, but I still think it's important we do our best to have this conversation. Michael, I appreciate you joining us. With your law background, what was your immediate reaction when you saw it? Lawsuit. You know, there's a lot of things I don't know, but I looked at it as this is a boss kissing someone that works for him in, a, in an environment where how can she say no to that? I'm sure she felt pressured, right? That she can't just opt out easily in that scenario. He, he's an authority figure. It's a public forum where you don't want to create some sort of distraction. She probably felt like she had no choice. And if that's the case, then it's yep. more wrong than ever that if she felt like she had no choice. And my guess, I don't know her, so I'm speculating, but it's a high-pressure moment to just say, no, you can't do that. You've got FIFA that have asked for Rubiales' resignation. The government wants it. Even some of his former allies now want it, even after the press conference, where a lot of them celebrated him saying he's not going to resign. What makes this so complicated to get him out of his position? And as you and I are talking, on August 30th, he still hasn't resigned. Yeah, I, I think a couple of things. One is he obviously believes that he's right. So there's that factor, which is the pride, the sense of indignation that he's being somehow railroaded by the media, by uh, criticisms related to uh, sex and gender that I'm guessing he views himself as some sort of villain or victim rather, mm -hmm. and that he's being portrayed as a villain. And that that probably is making it difficult for him to walk away at this point. There also may be a contractual issue where if he resigns, we don't know the economic impact of that. He presumably has right. some sort of employment contract where if he quits, that he could lose compensation. Maybe he's buying time for his attorney to negotiate an exit agreement so he can leave and still have some of the money that he's owed. That could be part of it as well. And also, what's going to be said about him if he quits? He may want some sort of non-disparage agreement that prevents him being consistently referred to as a sexist, a, a, an assaulter mm -hmm. even, 
So I, I think these are all factors in play. And then there's also what you alluded to, which is the mechanism of removing him. The government can't directly remove him as far as we understand. Right. So there's that. His organization has a procedure in place, but it's not entirely clear. This is kind of opaque, right? This is a private organization, so we don't have access to all of the way in which they make decisions. He could also face criminal charges, but even if that were to happen, that doesn't compel him to resign from his job. Jenny Hermosa immediately releases a statement saying it was mutual. Then 24 to 48 hours afterwards says, no, 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 no. I was pressured into that. That is not what happened. Is that why this is now complicated? Yeah. So this adds a layer of complexity to it where we could say we don't know exactly how she feels. And he might argue that she was somehow pressured into rescinding her original statement and offering a more critical one. It's just hard to know because we're not in the room, but it, it allows him to say that there's inconsistency about her narrative about the incident and that given her inconsistency, why should he quit his job over what he's going to portray as uh, an inconsistent portrayal of what he did? The other aspect of this is conceivably he could sue her for some sort of defamation claim, arguing that he, he, she's now misleading the public about what happened. I don't know if he's going to do that. And, and Spanish defamation law has its own peculiarities, as does any area of law in a different country. In fact, I don't think they actually formally recognize defamation. I think it's a variant of that. But regardless, he may argue that he has some sort of leverage because of the shift in what she said. Although, as you said, Taylor, she has at least alluded to the idea that she was pressured into saying it. And maybe she didn't say that initial statement altogether. Maybe they released a right. statement that was not actually attributed to her, which could give her a legal claim as well. So there's a, a lot of legal possibilities here. Michael, you and I both know, and I think for our listeners, it's important that the Spanish Federation has had issues already, right? The women have already had massive issues with the Federation treatment of the players, handling a certain situations, the inability to have privacy, all of that. And yet what I'm getting at is they went nuclear right from the beginning. They asked UEFA to suspend all Spanish teams from UEFA competitions. Why would they do that? And more importantly, I think for me, because I, I, I don't even know this answer, what's the likelihood that can actually happen? I think they went that direction so quickly, maybe because there's partly a buildup of issues, as you said, that this is not the only thing and that this was the latest one. It also happens to be the one that's generating the world's interest, whereas the other issues right. probably are more important because they're systemic, right? And they're affecting all sorts of players. You could argue that you know, longstanding inequality and mistreatment is, is a bigger deal than a one-time incident. But this one-time incident has captured the attention of everyone. So this is a good opportunity to make a stand. And this is also a physical act. This was an act that might be viewed as worse in the sense that it, it was an, a kiss without consent. You could say it's a it's an assault even. I know that maybe seemed like a strong word given what happened, but if somebody kisses you without your consent, that that's actually a big deal. I mean, what most people would be pretty offended by that. So I, I, my guess is that they view this as this is the right time to make this stand in terms of the of the mechanics of of how to how how it will be resolved and he can be suspended by any entity that has control over the playing of the Spanish teams. 
So in that regard, he could be suspended. And, and he has been, as we know, FIFA, he's been provisionally suspended for 90 days. And that suspension could be continued. So he could be separated from the sport for a while without firing him, without power. He could become segregated from the rest of the sport. So they can remove him via suspension, but actually terminating him from his position is where it gets a lot harder. Michael, I just want to leave you with this because the, part of the reason why I started this pod was I, I like to be challenged. I like to learn things. This got me. This got me right from the beginning because watching the kiss live on television, I had no idea what I was watching. But the most disturbing part for me was him at the podium where everyone in the media world was told this is his resignation. He says he's not resigning. And then the applause. The applause is what I, I don't know how to describe this to the listeners, but there was a pit in my stomach watching it on social media saying, is this where we are right now in the world where this man that kissed a woman against her consent is being applauded for standing and holding his ground while his mom is on a hunger strike in church. Michael, it's the most bizarre thing ever. It is bizarre. And I don't know if this is just the polite moment of people are there in front of him. So you feel kind of compelled to kind of play along, right? I mean, there's there, that, that is part of a lot of things. I think that you know, we feel pressured, socially pressured to just applaud certain statements, even when it's regarding somebody that has done things, even in that forum that are objectionable. So I think part of it is that, but you're right. The, the disconnect between cheering on somebody that's done something that, like you said, I mean, kissing somebody without their consent, we, it all struck us as weird, right? Like we don't see people behave yes. that way. It wasn't some normal yes. thing. And, and it, and it raised red flags immediately. And, and of course those red flags were warranted. Yep. And I think for all of us, Michael, that are listening, watching this from afar, if you are at all defending the action and defending anything about inequality, then I think that is the root of the issue. Michael, I've followed you for a long time on social media. You're a huge help for my understanding, I think, for a lot of my listeners about just law and sport and everything else. Thanks, buddy. You got it. Thanks. That's one of the heaviest conversations you're ever going to have. So I appreciate Michael coming on, educating me, but also educating all of us and just how complex the entire situation is. Now, I want to pivot. I know it's a difficult way to pivot, but right now we're talking at the end of August, early September, which is right when the transfer window ends in Europe, ends in Major League Soccer, yet there's always rumors going around. And at the forefront of that has been Major League Soccer because young players from all over the world have come to this league and it's been an important step in the growth of this league. Miguel Amaron, Tati Castellanos, Jordi Petrovic, to name a few. They've really made real money for this league. And that's when this league, Major League Soccer, made a decision they wanted to be a player on the world market. They needed to sell them. Now, replacing that talent isn't always easy. But let's be clear. It's good that Major League Soccer's best players are being coveted by teams in other leagues. Now, at the forefront of that conversation for a long time has been Atlanta United. 
Almada still going strong. Almada charging into the area, trying to play the one-two. Almada, the little ding touch, back for Long John Eats. Could still come, and Long John Eats gets the fourth. Lovely work between Almada and the debutante, Sama Long John Eats, who marks it with a goal. And Atlanta, 4-0 up on Nashville. The gem of the league right now is Thiago Almada. Now, the 22-year-old Argentine Central midfielders become Atlanta United's record signing in 2022, while also becoming Major League Soccer's first active player to win a World Cup. Messi's prodigy, as they say. And over this past couple of weeks in this transfer window, Almada was chased by a number of clubs, foremost Ajax in the Netherlands. But surprisingly, it looks like he's going to stay through the end of the year, maybe even longer. So joining us now to talk about this window's Thiago Almada saga, MLS is a selling league. Lionel Messi's press conference, and most importantly, the greatest goal that he ever scored in his life in the Atlanta media game, Felipe Cardenas, Atlanta's base soccer reporter for The Athletic, an analyst for CBS Sports Galazzo, and a good friend of mine. All right, my man, let's get right into it. Tiago Amada, I'm stunned because when he won the World Cup with Argentina, I was like, there's no way he gets past this summer transfer window. Are you as surprised as me or no? Currently, like in hindsight, I was a little bit surprised, but now I understand why he's still in Atlanta. And, and you just look at the team, you remove Tiago Amada, and I think the team comes apart. And the front office knew that. You know, Garth Lagerwey was pretty clear about that publicly and saying, like, yes, like we'd love for him to stay for years. And like, we understand also that he's coming off a World Cup win. He's playing with Messi. He's a legit talent. But I think they were adamant about also convincing the player and saying, you're going to go where you want to go eventually. But right now, like, let's try to do as much as we can with this season. And if you look at the winter window, they added three players that I think have allowed Tiago Mata to be what he is, a number 10 closer to the opponent's goal instead of what he was before when he was doing everything. Was he was helping the team build yeah. out of the back. He was going, he was taking a ball off a of center back. He was coming off the wing. He was playing as a 10. He was, sometimes he was recovering as a 6. It was it was just too much. And now you see him in a more free role and you're getting the most out of him. So yes, in hindsight, now I'm not surprised because I know what's at stake for Atlanta United this season. Yeah, and I, I think it's a good point because you look at the three players they added this summer transfer window, Felipe, they're complementary pieces, but good, strong pieces that puts him in a better spot. I think it's important for our listeners to understand that Arthur Blank, owner of Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United, has told the power brokers in the room he doesn't really care about the money if they believe Tiago helps them win. I just wonder, does Tiago want to stay past this winter? Or is this now, listen, I'll give you the rest of the year, but you've got to start to find me the right place in the right situation? I think it's the latter. You know, I, you know, Tiago Mata... When he, when he came to MLS, he sort of flipped his his narrative a couple of times, like he wasn't sure about the move, then he was, and, and, and you know, came into a project that I think was was uncertain, you know, to mm -hmm. Gonzalo Pineda, the head coach, you know, coming off a difficult year, and, and, you know, what is this project going to look like? Is he the right coach for Tiago Mata? What's his style? But now, I think he's settled in. You know, Tiago Mata lo loves Atlanta, but he has his eye on Europe, and I've been told 
through the Argentina national team circle. Like they want him to go as soon as possible. Like they they understand, you know, how important MLS is, especially for their North American expansion project and having Messi here. They mentioned Tiago Mata is like a big name that has come to MLS because he recognizes that the league is is growing. But for a player like him to really grow, he's got to test himself in a higher profile league. And so I, I would assume that they've come to an agreement. All right, I'm going to stay. I want to stay. But this winter, I've got to go. And the one thing you mentioned, what Arthur Blank wants, I've also heard from internally from LA United. He's like, I'm not interested in the record fees. I'm interested in trophies. And so that for Arthur Blank is a big one. And that's why the season is there's still so much to play for for Atlanta United, without a doubt. As a neutral, it's always why I've been a fan of Atlanta United. Felipe, you and I have known each other over the years. I love the go big or go home. They've gone big from the moment they set foot in Major League Soccer. Now, for some of our listeners that are now just getting into this league, there's a lot of record fees that have always come from Atlanta United. $27 million from Newcastle for Miguel Amarone. They went out immediately and signed the South American Player of the Year, P.T. Martinez. Then they sell him for roughly $18 million. All of that has led to Tiago Almada that were reports of whatever it may be, $20 million plus that they brought him in, right? Here's where my question is. What's the number that allows Atlanta United to say, that's fair, because you and I both know Ajax for 15 million euros, that's not going to do it. Not happening. Uh, La Liga clubs for 15 million plus 30% of the per. It, it, that's not going to work, Philippe. So, one, why are the numbers so low? But two, what do you think the numbers are really going to be during the winter? There has been a little bit of concern. But again, like Atlanta United, they keep everything close to the chest. Tiago Mata, uh, his agent, Agustin Jimenez, is notorious for not talking to media. Maybe he talks to two or three guys. You know, I think we can name who those guys are, you know, Cesar yeah. Merlo and Fabrizio Romano. Uh, so what's coming out, the fact that not we don't see a lot of offers is like, well, where are the offers? You know, like I I'm sure they've received a ton of interest for Tiago Almada, no doubt. But to your point, yeah, like Atlanta United is no stranger to big fees. I think the number that will open the door to negotiation is $30 million. And I know mm -hmm. you think, well, that's too high. You know, I've, sp I've spoken to colleagues at The Athletic about that that cover the Premier League and they say that 30 million isn't really that much, you know, like, Agreed. you know what I mean? Like there are teams that a lot of teams that can do that in the in the Premier League. There aren't a lot of teams around the world that are willing to. But that's the one thing that I think when you think about 30 million, if you think that's too high, think about the teams that are willing to spend. I look at Thiago Mata and I think he's worth it. You know, every time I think it's too high, I see him play and I'm like, this kid is a legit talent. But but do you believe he works in England? Because I think there's no. a debate that that may not be the best league for him right now, which then limits you of getting the $30 million transfer fee. Agree. Yeah, I don't think the Premier League is the best fit for Thiago Mata at all. It, that's why when the Ajax interest was made public, which, by the way, I have yes. a source that's really close to Ajax, and he told me they've been looking at Thiago for over a year. And so yep. this isn't out of the blue. You know, I love that fit. Taylor, I love the fit of Tiago at Ajax in the Eredivisie where they're going to play on foot on ball on the ground. He's going to be yep. showing yep. what he's really made of. And then guess what? He can make another jump for 70 million in the future. You know, like, so for Atlanta United, if they've paid $16 million at the minimum for Tiago Mata, there's just no way they're going to take anything that's less than 25 to $30 million. And 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 they there I think there is a plan here to show again the world that Atlanta United can attract the best young players 
in South America or the world and then say, we can also be the trampoline that they need to get to a higher league. You know, the $30 million that Garth Lagerwey is probably expecting, I think that'll come. And if you think Ajax won't pay it, I, I would argue that. They have money. You know, maybe it's yep. against their tradition to go and make a big fee, but they have plenty of cash to make that acquisition if they really want Tiago Amata. I'm glad you went there because if money is not the root of the decision-making from Arthur Blank, I'd argue 18 to 22 million from IX with a real percentage of the sell-on fee may be the best thing for him because I think he shows up at IX, I think he turns into a 60 to $80 million player. I don't think I that's agree. that big of a stretch. I actually don't think, Felipe, that's even a hot take. I no. think if he shows up at Ajax, I think he balls out. Now your investment turns into and you do well by the player. You, you've you been doing this a long time. The winter transfer window is a lot smaller. The dispersion yeah. of options is a lot more narrow than it is in the summer. That's why I'm still sitting here a little surprised he's <laughs> going to finish 2023 in Atlanta. No, I agree. I agree. And and also it's tough on the player to show up in the winter at a new club when no they're, they're mid-season, no you know, so that the summer window is always ideal. I agree. I think there is a, a high potential for that sort of agreement where it's an 18 to $25 million deal. And then the sell on in the future for Atlanta United, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's a team that I think he would fit in and then he's going to be playing Champions League football. I know. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. It's not like, oh, he's not a, a Premier League club. No, he's going to be in the Champions League. There's always a ton of expectation, a lot of eyes and visibility on Ajax. And so he'll get that, and he has the quality to to, to prove that he's a high-profile young player. So I agree. I don't think that's a hot take. I think that maybe that's where this is going, because you're not seeing the reports of, here's another big club coming after him. Here's another $30 million deal. No, maybe this is a more calculated business decision that Garth Lagerway is going to have to make. Last weekend, I saw Atlanta play Nashville. What was that? That's the Atlanta United that you're used to, that I'm used to. Could they sneakily surprise people now at the, the remaining part of the regular season and into the playoffs? That's that's the expectation. Let, let's start with what happened after that win. And I, I got a DM from a fan. I thought this was a great uh, DM. And he's like, Felipe, when they won... And when they win, I'm relieved. I don't celebrate. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, that that tells the story of where Atlanta United is. Like, it's like yes. you see the potential, and then they regress, and then they have a big win, and then they they don't. And that's why this window was so important. You know, Carlos Bocanegra told told the told reporters uh, before the window was closed, and after the Franco Ibarra fiasco, right, where they had to get rid of Franco Ibarra because they had four U22 players, you only allowed three. And after he was taking all the heat from that. You know, he told reporters, just wait till the end of the window. It'll all make sense. And, I, you know, I, th I think it does. You know, like credit to Carlos Bocanegra. He takes a lot of heat here in Atlanta. But those signings, I think, you know, Saba, the guy for the Georgian international, yeah. Muyamba, the number eight out of the French League 2, who's, who's really come in and filled a spot that has yes, been has. open and vacant for several years, ever since Darlington Nadby left. You, they've been looking for the replacement, the Nagby replacement. Yep. And I'm not yep. ready to put him there yet. But, no, but he looks the but, part. He yeah, looks the profile. Yeah. yeah, he can play out of the back. He can be a six. He's very comfortable in the ball. And again, he's taken a lot of pressure off of Almada in that part of the game. And then, you know, Shande Silva, the Portuguese winger, who yeah. as soon as <laughs> they signed him, I mean, it was a ridiculous goal. And as soon as they signed him, you take a look at him, you see him in person, you're like, buddy, this guy 
is going to be a problem. He's physical, he's experienced, he's creative, he can play off both wings, and, and he wants to score. So again, you go back to what Garth Lagerwey told me in March, and he's been very public about this. He's told other reporters, you know, my money spot for DPs and for big signings is 23 to 29 years of age. That's Giacomakis. That's where he fits in. That's where all three of these new players fit in. Talking to Gonzalo Pineda and his assistants at the the the, re, the recent media game, which Taylor, I'm sure, did you see my goal or what? Have you yeah, seen my uh, goal? By the way, what are the, I, I was going to save it now. for the end, but what all are right, you doing? All right, all right, all right. Save it. By the save. way, best goal of your No, hold on. No, no, no. Best goal of your life? Uh, I mean. It's up ma- there. It's up there because it's It's up it's there because like, there's footage of it. There's footage, dude. <laughs> there's footage. You know, I, I get the the late night, you know, in high school, they they go and they, they show the clips of your games. You never show your goals. But no, you know, the media game is a great opportunity. Again, that ball from Pineda. I mean, I'm taking, I'm taking a ball from a former World Cup player. Yeah, Could but I, you better say his job's not on the line now because of that ball he gave you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, but no, speaking of that, like the, him and his assistants, they looked really confident about the form of the team, but they, they were also fully aware of the, the stakes that are at play. They can't flame out. They can't crash out this year. You know, I think that's, that's, that, that yes. is true. But one thing that one of his assistants told me was, you know, we never doubted our talent, but everything changes when you bring in players that have experience. That's just it. It's just the bottom line. You, if you go too young, and this is a young team, that's been the difference. These three guys have mileage and they have, they've got a grit. But I would also argue with any one of those assistants, with anyone in the front office, you need glue guys. You yes. need guys that can bring all the talent together. Atlanta's never had a talent problem, ever. Yeah. However, they've had the wrong players, the wrong pieces They've had too many of the same profile, not enough of the others. And you could argue all three of the players they brought in this summer window, they're all different profiles because they bring the collection of the other talent together, which I actually believe they're sneakily coming up on my radar as maybe a team that could surprise teams. Now, Gonzalo Pineda's got to let the training wheels come off a little bit, let this group go because they just housed Nashville at home. And that was the old Atlanta United team that we all loved. There is something going on in Atlanta. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I think you and I three, four weeks from now could be talking about Atlanta in the playoffs. I'm taping this podcast in Miami. Felipe, I don't think our listeners got enough perspective, even though I've been talking about Miami and Messi for about four weeks. (laughs) You were at the press conference. Yeah. Just give perspective. What was it like? You know, I was at the World Cup in in, in Qatar, and I, I covered a, a number of teams. Argentina was one of them. So I was at Lionel Messi's first press conference in Qatar before the the loss to Saudi Arabia. That was insane. Like there was a a line out the door for over an hour. An hour before that press conference, some reporters didn't get in. They were arguing about getting in. When he comes out, he's applauded. When he leaves, he's applauded. There were journalists from Argentina in tears. In tears. I, I have colleagues that say, oh, he doesn't say anything interesting. I'm like, I think he does if you read between the lines, you know, like he, again, he was getting a lot of uh, softball questions at the World Cup before that loss, but it got real when they lost that game. In Miami, I felt like it was, it was just so much different, you know, like the room was smaller, the camera clicks weren't as loud. Obviously, it was way more intimate, wasn't it? Yes, it was 60, 70 people. The room is small. And now he's he's off of a World Cup win. You know, the pressure is off of him and you could see it. So being in a room with Lionel Messi, you've, you've got to 
A, appreciate it, and then understand that this is a rare occasion, to your point. I think it's not just him, it's his camp saying, we'll talk when we're ready, we'll talk when we want. And that was a big occasion. He was about to play his first final with Inter-Miami, and it was his opportunity to finally say in public, like, why I chose Inter-Miami, why I'm here, and what this means. I thought he was so transparent about yeah. being unhappy in Paris. Uh-huh. I didn't realize how unhappy he was. I can see it on his face when he scores goals. He's got the Marvel celebrations with his kids. I get all that, Felipe. But truthfully, there was a human at the podium that was really unhappy in Paris. That was first and foremost that yeah. stood out. Did you get the same feeling? Oh, yeah. You know, like he, if you, if you remember his time at, at PSG, again, he in this press conference that you're referencing on August 17th in, in Miami, he's like, I didn't want to go. So like it was it was now what I wanted to do. And he gets to PSG and you see it. Like it's it's Champions League or or you fail. And that sort of pressure is is going to affect anybody. He doesn't he didn't understand the language. His family wasn't happy there. And then the fans were all over him. The press was <laughs> Which all over. Which is unbelievable. The press was giving him a rating of 5.5 on the daily. Okay? <laughs> and then his home fans were jeering him. Then he goes and he beats France. In the World Cup final. Exactly. And it got worse. And then he comes to Miami and he's just, he's like a beetle. He goes to yep. dinner. He's t- he's getting kissed by fans. He enjoys it. I think he really is a guy that needed that sort of uh, acceptance. And I think he's really relishing being in a place where it's highly Latino. The language isn't a problem. The beach is right there. All Argentines love the beach. And even though I tried to get him on a, on a question about pressure... You know, yep. you're, you're, you're taking the torch from Pele and David Beckham. Are you aware of that? Man, his answer was like, I don't think about those things because I'm just here answer. to play ball. It was a great I mean, answer. It's amazing. I will say the one thing that stood out to me more than anything, and you know the hill I'm going to die on, he said he's going to play on turf. Yeah. I did not have him saying that, my man. No, I, did I didn't not. either. I didn't either. I mean, I think, here's the thing, though. I think he was very well prepared for that press conference. You know, I no think doubt. They, and so he, his answers, while he was riffing a lot, I'm sure he knew he was going to get that question. And listen, it's true. He grew up playing on turf. You know, at, at the they call it the it's literally called the baby level, baby in in English at Newell's. When you're not even at the academy yet, you're not even a U team player. You're playing at the, the lowest division. It's just kids, and he that's where he was playing on turf. And he sort of went up the change at Newell at Newell's. A lot of the clubs have turf fields because that's where they the, the the younger teams practice. And so it's true. He's on it. And I think that's the one thing, you know, a lot of people say there's no pressure on him. I think there's pressure on him here. It's not the same pressure as Barcelona. It's not there's pressure, pressure that on him. he's going to feel. It's different. It's like his legacy is still in the making. Like he comes here and flames out and decides to walk around and not care. We will remember that. Clearly he cares. And I think playing on turf and being open to that and saying, like, I'm going to be at these games, that was a calculated decision on his part. So everyone can rejoice, especially Atlanta. They're expecting 75,000 people on on September 16th at the Benz, and and Messi's going to be there. Yeah, and Charlotte may be decision day and also may be the game that determines whether or not to make the playoffs. Buddy, every time I talk to you, I learn something. Appreciate you taking the time. All right, man. Fantastic insight from Felipe about Atlanta United, but also Lionel Messi and that press conference and the difference pre-pressure, pre-World Cup win, now to post. 
just fantastic to hear that insight. Now, the last thing I want to talk about before we answer a few listener questions, and by the way, keep sending in the listener questions, fantastic questions every single week. But it's the U.S. men's national team roster that was announced on Wednesday. I love having this conversation around the U.S. men's national team roster and social media and the conversation that it's always toxic and delusional. I'm on the side of things. I always want something. I'd rather have delusion. I'd rather have hysteria. I'd rather have anger than nothing. I don't want apathy. I want attention. I want energy. And while I do think some of it is delusional, I'd rather have the conversation. Today was everything but that. There was nuance. There was energy. There was enough meat on the bone around the U.S. men's national team roster release for the first time in a long time. And it's surrounded around one column. Ben Amin Kramaski, the homegrown player from Inter-Miami. Because it looks like we're turning over a new leaf. We're actually having real conversation about the play on the field, the play off the field, reasons behind this, and what it may be. Now listen, this is a dual national, and Ben Amin Kramaski can play for Argentina, he can play for the United States. He's been called in the U-20s for both countries. Now, what nobody knows, I said it on Apple TV, and I'll say it here so we're all understanding what went on. The United States under-20 national team called him into the World Cup. They put him on the roster. But Kramaski, with the help of Chris Henderson, Phil Neville, and his family, decided that it would be more important for him to play in seven or eight games with Inter-Miami than to go to the World Cup. But that doesn't mean his passion for playing for the United States isn't there. Does he deserve to be called up? I love that conversation. I don't think that's what the question should be. I think the question should be, why is he being called up now? The reason why he's being called up now is, one, he's caught the attention of a lot of people playing on Inter-Miami with Lionel Messi. He's been very good. Is he ready for the international level? I don't know that answer. You don't know that answer. But I have zero problem with calling him up for two friendlies. I have zero problem with Benjamin Kramaski being called up right now. Whether he's deserve it or not, I was wrong in the past because I didn't want to hand out caps just for handing out caps. But these are friendlies almost three years from the World Cup where you're being introduced to dual nationals. He's not the only one that's on this roster. But more importantly, why wouldn't you call him up? He's in your backyard. He's in great form. Let's see. We may all be wrong. He may be ready. He may actually be ready. Greg Berhalter may love the profile of this player. The only question I have for U.S. soccer and Greg Berhalter is this. If Benjamin Kramaski is being called up for the potential, Jack McGlynn has had multiple phone calls from Ireland. He's in your under-20 program. Why hasn't he been called up? Brian Gutierrez, another player that's been fantastic for Chicago Fire, a ton of potential in the future. No buck. Unreal phenomenon for the New England Revolution as a homegrown where England's U-20s are going to call him up. That's been reported. That's news. Why hasn't he been called up? I get the Benjamin Kramaski. I have no problem with it. My only question is, 
the other players should be on the radar, should be in the group. And quite honestly, I'd have zero problem with these two friendlies. Why not call up all of them? Get them in the camp. It doesn't matter whether or not you win or lose. It's more important that you're setting up the future with a pool of players that gives you the best chance of having success in the 26 World Cup. So good on Kramaski being in the group. I think McGlynn, Gutierrez, and Buck should have been there as well. Now, for those of you at home that don't know what the roster is, keep in mind, Giovanni Reyna has been injured since the Nations League, fracture in the leg. That was the most notable omission, but he's injured. Josh Sargent, news just came out as we were taping this, that he's going to be out not for weeks, but months with an ankle injury. We're going to have more of that in the future. Hopefully, we may have Greg Berhalter on, but that's a conversation in and of itself. But the biggest conversation today was Ben Amin Kramaski. First call up to the U.S. men's national team. Good luck, kid. The favorite part about this podcast for me is the fact that we can talk about anything and everything, and I am still learning on the job. I'm still learning in the process. Michael was fantastic. Felipe gave us great insight. I had no idea that he was there at the World Cup and the press conference. I love getting your messages. I love answering them. Keep them coming. I want to see what you guys have for me every single week. Call me, text me anytime at 646-571-8496. That's 646-571-8496. You can also email me at offsidepodwithtaylor at gmail.com. Peter, you there, buddy? Yeah, man. Let's do it. Okay. What do you got for me this week? I got a text message from Sam who says, can we talk about RSL? Um, Yes, of course we we can. We Salt Lake. They won eight straight going into League's Cup, but on Wednesday's match against Houston, the wheels seemed to come off a bit. Chicho had seemingly no effect on the game. Vera lost his shit at the end. Can (laughs) RSL pull it together? What do you think? Uh, Vera did lose it, didn't he? Uh, Wheels coming off is being... A little generous considering you lose in the Open Cup semifinal of the Houston and then you return the favor back home and you lose 3-0 to Houston again. Listen, Real Salt Lake, Pablo Mastrani, I think we talked about it on this pod. They have done a lot of good things. Ownership given them real money to spend. They've brought in the right players. But the injury to Pablo Ruiz may be the wheels coming off. I am very curious how Pablo Mastrani manages that but I don't find it coincidental that Ruiz's injury is then followed by two huge losses to the Houston Dynamo. If they figure that out, they're going to have something to say in the Western Conference. If they don't, then it may be a disappointing end, but I do like what Real Salt Lake did in this transfer window. One more email from Dario, who says, Hey, Taylor, love the brand new podcast. I've been listening to every episode so far, and honestly, I can't think of any way to roast you yet. But I do have a question, which I would like your answer to. What are your top five MLS stadiums? Great question. Uh, It depends on atmosphere and stadiums. Two different things. Listen, the top five right now, and I can't believe Atlanta's not going to be in this. But top five, no particular order. FC Cincinnati, St. Louis City, LAFC, Nashville, And I'm going to leave it at that. And I'm going to let you guys tell me who my fifth one should be and where I got that wrong. But St. Louis City will always be in that, Peter. They know that. You know that. It's your heart, man. Your heart in St. Louis. 
It is my heart, buddy, but my brain is in Miami. Taping this podcast, another messy show coming, which means next week, nope, nope, I'm not going to do it. I'm not doing it. I can't promise you guys I'm not talking about. Michael McCann, Felipe Cardenas, thank you for joining us. This is Offside with Taylor Twelman, a Major League Soccer podcast produced by Apple TV and Rain Delay Media. Executive producers are Peter Moses and John Yales. John was our editor. Michael Janot was our engineer. Jonah Buchanan and Iggy Monda were our researchers. Music was composed by Brian Decker, and I'm your host, Taylor Twalman. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts. Rumors with anyone and everyone. Appreciate Tom coming on. Now, a colleague of his at The Athletic, Felipe Cardenas, is very, very insightful on Atlanta United, on Tata Martino, on Leonardo. Hang on. My wife's calling me on FaceTime. <laughs>